0: Welcome to Stewardship Spotlight, a podcast featuring conversations with the world's leading experts on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship. This podcast is produced by the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. I'm Dr. Marnie Peterson, your host. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Brad Spellberg about making the discovery and development of antibiotics sustainable. This is a very important issue which he described recently with co-authors, one of which was Dr. John Bartlett in the New England Journal of Medicine. So for those of you not familiar with Dr. Spellberg, just a brief background. He is the Chief Medical Officer at the Los Angeles County University of Southern California Medical Center. His impact on the field of infectious diseases is extensive as a clinician and antimicrobial steward, as well as research in the development of new antimicrobials. He's also the author of numerous articles and books. He has worked extensively with the Infectious Disease Society of America to bring attention to the problems of increasing drug resistance and decreasing new antibiotics. And we're going to be discussing some of his uh, important issues around sustainable antibiotic development that was recently described in the New England Journal of Medicine. So, thank you, Dr. spellbuck for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, we're going to dive right into this important topic. Brad, you've been speaking and writing about this topic for years now, and even in our first SIDRAP ASP webinar back in September t- 2016. You warned that the economic incentives for antimicrobial de- development don't coincide with good stewardship practices. Can you describe some of the key factors that have led us to this predicament that we're currently in?
1: Well, I the reason why companies aren't developing antibiotics anymore is or at least large companies is that the return on investment is just not there to justify putting money into R&D in the antibacterial space when you can make way more money in the oncology space or dementia or arthritis or even in the anti-infective space for antiretrovirals or anti-HCV drugs. Many people focus on the fact that antibiotics are short-term therapies you take for a week and then stop. Um, People have also pointed out that we have stewardship. And so experts like us and the listeners to your podcast. Go around telling people not to use the new drug to save it for the people who need it, and that also depresses sales. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> the real underlying driver, I think, hasn't been as well recognized or discussed, which is that there are simply too many antibiotics on the market for there to be potential for you to have a half billion dollar year seller. The competition is really intense. There's Dozens, many dozens, maybe upwards of 90 antibiotics on the market now. And when a new drug gets developed and approved, it's going to compete with all those other antibiotics. It may have a tiny niche of resistance to many of the other drugs, but each new drug that gets approved is going to decreasingly capture or capture a smaller and smaller slice of that pie. So essentially, at the end of the day, antibiotics have become commodities. And when I see people talk about how you should be able to charge $500, $600, $800 a day for what is essentially a commodity, you sort of think, okay, so we've created a new flavor of bacon. And the small percentage of the public that doesn't like the current flavors of bacon, that's our market niche. And instead of charging $1.50 like Farmer John does, we're going to put this new flavor of bacon on the shelf and charge $500 a day. How much of that do you think you're going to sell? People need to realize that this problem is only going to keep getting worse. That every new drug that's approved is going to compete with every future drug that will be approved.
0: Yeah. And can you also talk a little bit about with the incentives that have, have occurred over the past, call it the past decade to incentivize Companies and even even startup companies to develop new antimicrobials, and these were specifically targeting multidrug resistant organisms. Some of some of those companies have been successful in developing them, bringing them to market. Uh, but because they are targeting multi-drug resistant organisms, of course, with good stewardship practices, they're they're only used. They're held in reserve and only used in, in an in emergency type situation.
1: Yeah, so good points. I mean, I think the first thing I'll point out is that the idea that the crisis today is worse than it's ever been and is unprecedented is simply unequivocally incorrect. Our problems with antibiotic resistance have been around since antibiotics. We have gone through cyclical periods where multiple new antibiotics were developed Industry sort of regressed away because the problem seemed solved. Resistance caught up, industry came back. This is something that's happened several times over the last 80 years. There's nothing new about this crisis. There is nothing unprecedented about this crisis. Perhaps more importantly, things are substantially better today than they were 15 years ago. Fifteen years ago, MRSA was exploding into communities We had not learned to use older antibiotics that had not been previously used to treat it, and we had many new antibiotics subsequently get approved to treat it. Just in the last five years, we have seen rates of approval at the FDA level that have not been seen since the mid-1990s. The pipeline is much more robust today than it was 15 years ago. 15 years ago, we found six antibiotics in development. Pew Charitable Trust, it <clears throat> says there are 42 in development today. That's sevenfold increase in 15 years. So people need to recognize that this is our window of opportunity. Things are actually substantially better today than they were 15 years ago. And we're going to have a period, and who knows whether it's a five-year period, a 10-year period, where we can take a breath and really think about how do we fundamentally redesign how we do this So we don't keep going through these cyclical boom-bust cycles where resistance cyclically catches up and actually smooth things out. This is our window of opportunity to do that. Many of the antibiotics that have been approved have either hit pathogens that we don't need new drugs for or have hit the same pathogen over and over and over. So we've had five CRE drugs approved in the United States in the last four years. You don't need five drugs to kill one pathogen. This highlights, and what I think your question underscores, we have not accurately targeted our resource expenditures to where the unmet need is. We have not done a good job of making sure that the substantial public funds used to incentivize antibiotic development have been used optimally. And so what we tend to get are companies that develop take the easy way and develop MRSA skin drugs when we don't need MRSA skin drugs, or sort of cluster around one pathogen to the exclusion almost of others, and that would be the CRE example. We need to do a much better job of making sure that the substantial public funds that are now available to incentivize R&D are spent to incentivize the right antibiotics to solve the right problems, and not incentivize development of drugs we don't need against diseases we have plenty of other drugs to treat or cluster around one or two pathogens without spreading more broadly to, to cover other unmet needs.
0: That's an important, important um, consideration as well as we move into other strategies for development. Um, I think also, as you mentioned before, is the role of historically the role of what you're able to charge for something to try to get a return on investment. In addition to all of the incentive money that has gone into the development of these new antimicrobials. And I'm just talking historically and more recently, this came to everyone's attention with the um, biotech startup company, Achaogen, which ended up filing for bankruptcy in April of 2019. So this really highlighted this area and brought it to everyone's attention. This company received FDA approval for plasmacytis and also had a fairly robust pipeline. And they had received extensive r and funding, not only from investors as well as from the you, the government and Carvax. So clearly, the company didn't fail, but it was the the marketplace of which these 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 antibiotics are being developed for that now need to be held in reserve. So the marketplace itself needs to change as well.
1: Well, um, sort of yes and sort of no. So um, the first point is that a Cajun was warned by multiple experts over multiple years that clinicians do not want to use aminoglycosides in the 80s and 90s. When aminoglycoside use was much heavier, they were the number one cause of medical malpractice lawsuits against infectious disease practitioners. Not even so much for the renal failure, but for the ototoxicity. We, multiple people, warned them this was going to be, at best, a niche seller. You were never going to sell $100 million a year of plasomycin ever. Um, aside from the fact that it didn't differentiate fabulously well from amikacin, which covers a meaningful proportion of CRE anyway. It it, it, Plazo does differentiate some, but it's not transformative. It's an incremental advance over amikacin for CRE. And it's an aminoglycoside. If you're a company that has, you know, primo property in South San Francisco and, you know, has a fairly substantial R&D burn rate, and you are pushing forth a drug that's gonna sell $10 million per year in an area where VC investors expect a five to 10 fold return on investment over short periods of time, you should go bankrupt. That is what the capital markets say should happen. This was not surprising, and I think reflects more so than anything else, an unrealistic matching Of what these drugs will do in the market in a commodities marketplace compared to the hype that's been pumped into them. Um, I don't think you're going to change a capital marketplace, right? You're not going to you're not going to tell companies or you're not going to be able to get companies to make a ton of money in a space where there just isn't a ton of money being spent. You can pump all the incentives in the world you want, but essentially at that point, all you're doing is paying people the incentives. The market itself has spoken. Maybe we should listen to the market and stop arguing with it. We've got R&D incentives to encourage companies to develop drugs. We need to much better target which drugs get developed with those incentives, as we've said, But maybe, and this was the point of the New England Journal of Medicine article, maybe instead of spending billions and billions of more dollars to pay for profits, so where you're now not only covering the cost of R&D, you're now actually paying for the profits, then what do you need the company for if you're paying on the front end and the back end? Maybe instead of doing that, what we should be doing is establishing nonprofits that don't answer to shareholders, that don't need year-over-year revenue growth, and for which a five to $10 million a year seller is perfectly fine, because then you take the revenue and pump it back into your R&D portfolio, and let the nonprofits use the same push incentives that for-profits are currently using in a more targeted way, and then not have them have to sell $200 million a year to make their investors happy. Maybe that's a more sustainable approach that actually accepts the reality of a capital commodities market rather than trying to convince a market that it isn't a commodity when it actually is.
0: Yeah, I want, and I want to get in. I, that's a good segue because I want to transition into the actual uh, some of the information that you've described in the New England Journal of Medicine article. Uh, and so we're going to get into describing what was actually in this New England Journal of Medicine article where you did describe and suggest a nonprofit model that, that would have certain advantages to the current entrepreneurial and capital markets. So just describing some of the pros of such a model and maybe just um, how this can intersect or how this is similar to some of the CarbX programs or the TV Alliance, how it's similar, different, how they would intersect some of your comments there.
1: Yeah, so uh, the first thing is what are we? You know, there's been a lot of confusion, some of which I think is intentional because the idea is very threatening to people who have deep vested capital interests in the current model. Certainly. Even, even some of our specialty leadership societies um, or specialty professional societies that are deeply vested in the current model have been very threatened by this idea. So let's talk about what we're talking about here. We're not talking about what Carbex does. We're not talking about a nonprofit that takes funds from other people and then distributes them to companies to fund development. We're talking about establishing nonprofits that internally do their own discovery and development of new antibiotics. So really what we'd like to see, sort of take an old-school pharma model, where you have, say, 15, 20, 30 FTEs in a disease area that run the gamut of expertise necessary to develop a drug. In this case, microbiology, animal toxicity, animal model testing, medicinal chemistry, etc cetera. And have them live in a nonprofit organization whose mission is to discover, internally discover, and develop new antibiotics that hit critical unmet needs the organizations would hopefully live off an endowment so that there is a substantial endowment made and base R&D expenditures live off the interest of the endowment so they don't erode into the endowment but have a renewable source annually to pay for those FTEs. The additional costs of research would then take advantage and leverage existing push incentives like CARBAX, like NIH, like DoD, BARDA, the Welcome Trust, etc., to do the actual research work beyond the work of the the FTEs that are that are covered by the interest from the endowment. The advantage of this model is that you bring together a team of experts the way that pharma used to have them, but they don't have to meet satisfy shareholder demand. In 2011, when I was on the Pfizer Anti-Infective Advisory Board. I asked Paul Miller at the time, who was the director of the program, senior VP and director of the program, are you worried Pfizer's gonna get out of the business? Because all the other big companies are. And his answer was, no, I'm not worried. I asked our CEO and he says, Pfizer's been in antibiotics since penicillin and Pfizer will always be in antibiotics. Well, two years later, there was a new CEO and that CEO dumped the program. And that's what always happens. Even on those rare occasions in big companies where you get an enlightened person that understands the social benefit rather than the economic benefit of these programs, their tenure doesn't last that long. And anytime new management comes in, antibiotics are the first programs to get cut. So here, you're not satisfying shareholder demand. You don't need to show revenue growth year after year. If If you're Merck and you have a $50 billion year base revenue, who the heck cares If you sell $5 million a year of a new antibiotic, it makes no difference to you. In fact, it's lost opportunity cost instead of investing in another oncology product. If you're a small VC-backed company and the expectations have been set for $300 million a year and you sell 20, you're going to go bankrupt. You're not going to make it. Nonprofits don't answer to shareholders, and they don't have to make hundreds of millions of dollars on a drug single digit to low tens of millions would be extremely helpful for them to feed back into their R&D pipeline, would allow them to focus on the mission without worrying about shareholder at value, and would allow them, therefore, to focus on drugs we need in small market niches without trying to take a drug that could have been important and instead pumping it into an MRSA skin profile because you think it will sell more drug that way. That's basically the essence of what we're talking about.
0: How do you you envision, um, in your conversations and in the writing of this article, how did you envision that that initial funding, where that initial funding would come from to create the the non-for-profit entities?
1: Yeah, so that's, of course, the challenge. Now, I should point out, you mentioned the TB Alliance. The TB Alliance exists. The TB Alliance is not necessarily doing internal discovery, but they're doing the development work, much like we're talking about, and just had a huge success with Protaminid. <clears throat> Guard P is now starting to do in the UK, is now starting to do some contracted internal discovery work. We're starting to see these models come to the fore. I do think this is the future. I think that the for profit model will become less important. It will never be gone completely, but I think it will become less critical as nonprofits step to the fore. How do the funding come? The funding comes from one of two places. You either need rich donors or foundations like the Gates Foundation, which backed the TB Alliance, Uh or you need government. And you know, carb was founded, was funded by government. There's no reason government couldn't fund startups. Um, uh, Sorry, nonprofit startups. And so what we've said in doing the journal article is, if you think about sustainability, and by the way, there's a whole other aspect here I need to touch on, which is the current economic reality of healthcare. If you think about sustainability, we feel that it may be a much better investment to take a billion dollars and seed three nonprofits to do what we've discussed with substantial endowments to live off the interest from those endowments for their base R&D burn rate than to have to pump $1 to $2 billion of pull incentives into every new antibiotic that comes along in in perpetuity. Layered underneath all of this are some ugly economic realities that people that keep pushing pull incentives don't seem to want to admit. The United States is $22 trillion in debt. We're running trillion-dollar deficits. Neither of those things were true 15 years ago when we were in major crisis and pushing for incentives. Healthcare eats nearly 20% of our GDP. And it eats so much of the federal budget as to nearly cripple the ability to spend federal dollars on virtually anything else. Our patients are dealing with a crisis of homelessness, a crisis of lack of access, a crisis of pricing and affordability. The reality is, if you said what is the number one problem in the United States in terms of health care, antibiotic resistance is not number one. This is, it is, and so what's the point of all this? <clears throat> Are you really going to be able to convince the American taxpayer that in an era of $22 trillion of debt and trillion dollar deficits and huge expensive healthcare costs and terrible healthcare access and bad healthcare outcomes, that where the taxpayer should spend more of their hard earned tax dollars is to pay for profits for for profit? VC-backed companies and large pharma companies, particularly in an era where pharma is really disliked by most of the public, is that a sustainable, seemingly sustainable model in this era? I mean, if, if you think it is, you have a problem, because I'm Captain Superbug, right? I've been calling this tune out for 15 years, and you don't have me. I'm a taxpayer, too. And I don't want my hard-earned tax dollars going to pay to pump up the profits of these companies. So if you can't even convince me of that, what's what's your chance of convincing the average American taxpayer that that's what their hard-earned tax dollars should be used to 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 spend on?
0: Yeah, but you're saying that there's still this urgency. uh, Well, I guess you're saying take a step back to see where we should be putting.
1: What I'm saying is I actually think things are better today than they've been for the last 20 years. I think we have a moment in time. And as I said, this is not a new thing. We've cycled through periods of boom and bust several times in the last 80 years. We have a rare moment in time here where we can not panic and take a step back, not rush, Not push 40 new antibiotics to market in five years, hitting things we don't need or that are redundant, but to think about how can we we change the construct of this market to smooth out those booms and busts, to create a more sustainable way. I mean, the reality is antibiotic resistance is not a five to 10 year problem. Assuming artificial intelligence does not wipe out humanity in the next hundred years, 500 years from now, human beings will still want effective antibiotics to be there. We're 80 years into this, and we've nearly burned through them three times. How much longer are we gonna be able to get away with these booms and busts? We need to think about a sustainable, slow drip approach where every few years, a really needed antibiotic comes along and it lasts much longer than it's currently lasting. I don't think this is the time for us to say Let's put billions of dollars of new incentives into place to pay for profit for companies. I don't think you're going to get the American public to agree to that. I don't think it's a wise use of American taxpayer dollars. I don't think it addresses the number one health or even the top three health care problems Americans face. And I don't think it's aligned with what Americans are saying to their elected officials they need. I don't think it's realistic.
0: How, you know, it takes... Upwards almost 20 years to develop an antimicrobial to reach the marketplace. Um, and the probability of development from start to finish is, is we have low efficiency at the moment. Um, but how how do you envision you'd still collaborate and have partnerships with the pharmaceutical industry, correct? Is that what I'm hearing? I,
1: I certainly I, I certainly would think you would want to try to keep them involved to the extent that you can in an era where... Their return on investment isn't fabulous.
0: Right. So just changing the model and that kind of gets to a, a follow-up question is when you' when the New England journal article was was released and published, it was went out on social media in the form of tweets, uh, created a lot of commentary, and there it, there was a tweet particularly from the executive director of the Carvex program. Kevin Otterson. And in his tweet, he did ask the question of, you know, how will a nonprofit be sustainable without reforms to how antibiotics are paid for, how, you know, and changing the marketplace?
1: Yeah. So do you
0: have any thoughts on that, on those questions? I think that he's not the only one asking that question, obviously.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think to some extent that I've, I've, I've answered that question already. Um <clears throat> You know, if you're living off an endowment that covers your base R&D costs and you're able to tap into push incentives to cover the remainder of the R&D costs, you don't need to have a $200 million a year drug uh, in order to stay solvent. And his comment was for nonprofits have to maintain a positive margin. That's absolutely false. Nonprofits just can't have a negative margin beyond what their endowment covers. And so that's the point. If a nonprofit is able to use push incentives to pay for the bulk of the R&D costs, while well, its base R&D costs are covered by its endowment, by the interest off its endowment, and it brings to market a drug that sells $15 million per year, that's a huge win for that, for that nonprofit it can then take those revenues and feed them back into its endowment and its R&D expenditures. For-profit companies answer to VC investors. They answer, if they're large companies, to their shareholders that expect them to show year-over-year revenue growth. Look, if you're Merck and and you have $50 billion a year in revenue, you might say to yourself, I'm fabulous. I'm making $50 billion a year in revenue, but the reality is your shareholders don't care. They're saying, "What have you done for me lately?" If you made fifty billion in revenue last year, you better get to fifty-five this year, or you're in trouble. It, the nonprofit model gets you out of the trap of having to show year-over-year year revenue growth in an environment where antibiotics simply don't sell like that. You're not going to get antibiotics to sell like that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a good explanation, and you you wouldn't have the pressure to sell at the higher margin. And would make the antibiotics available as needed, but they would need to sell at the at the predictions and the higher costs that they currently are at.
1: I also think it's much easier to, to it, the public can much easier understand the need to support a nonprofit that's meeting the public's needs than it is to put taxpayer money into for-profit companies to pump up yeah. their profits. I, 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 just, I, I think that is so deeply out of touch with what Americans are saying their healthcare needs are right now. What, Americans are furious over the costs of healthcare generally and the costs of pharmaceuticals specifically. I mean, I just, I, like I, as the CMO of a huge public hospital, when I'm, when I'm on medicine, last time I was on medicine, more than half of my admissions were homeless patients. Okay? They need housing, they need access to care that I don't think people are there. I think people are in an echo chamber and they're reinforcing their own message from this very narrow point of view of antibiotics, 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 antibiotics. We can convince the public to spend money on antibiotics. I don't think they're dialoguing with patients. I don't think they're dialoguing with frontline physicians who are caring for those patients. It just feels deeply out of touch to, to be honest. One of the reviewers for at the New England Journal of Medicine thought that our article was too pro-pharma, said that we felt deeply out of touch by even suggesting that incentives should be considered for pharmaceutical profits. Our message was we, we actually are not suggesting that. But, but you just think about that those discrepancies is what because you're accurately describing the social media response to the New England yeah. Journal article. But one of the reviewers actually thought we were too pro-pharma.
0: So it's it's really we need to keep dialoguing, we need to be open to these challenges ahead and how new models could come to the forefront to create sustainable development. Do you have just to close? And I know we could talk about this much more, but we'll probably have to have you back for another podcast here. Um, do you have any future final closing and future predictions or some of the challenges you see ahead? Um, maybe, maybe just talk a little bit about where you think this will be going forward in the next couple of years in the future.
1: Well, we do have other thoughts. They will be coming forward hopefully soon. And we and, and would be delighted to do a follow-up podcast to talk about those other thoughts. Um, I think that, in short, um, antibiotic resistance is never going to go away. It's always going to be with us. It's always going to be a challenge to discover new antibiotics, and it's getting increasingly hard to do that. We need. We have a moment in time here where we have a bunch of CRE drugs that have been approved. MRSA really is not an antibiotic problem anymore. VRE is not an antibiotic problem anymore. Uh, we have drugs in development for other serious gram-negative pathogens, right? That We're way ahead of where we were 15 years ago. Our pipeline is much more robust than it's been for the last 20 years. This is the moment for us to seriously rethink How should we do this in a sustainable way that gets us out of these boom-bust traps? And I do think nonprofits, they're not the only thing that needs to happen, but I do think nonprofits are more compatible with what the capital markets are saying is the reality. I think they're more compatible with a commoditized market. I think they require much less massaging to get drugs that we need um, at relatively small market sizes than the traditional entrepreneurial model, not to say to the exclusion of, but in partnership with, I think over time, the nonprofits will become increasingly important in this space. And I would urge people to, in dialoguing, to really consider multiple points of view. Because I think that, that a lot of the dialogue around this space has been very almost exclusionary to some extent. And as someone who is admitting patients to the hospital on a general medicine service fairly frequently, the dialogue that's happened does not feel in touch with what my patients tell me they need, with what the, the frontline physicians at my hospital tell me they need. It just it doesn't feel in touch with what Americans are saying they need right now. So I would I would just encourage a more open and inclusive dialogue uh, than we've had in the past.
0: Yes, that's a, a good way to close, and also just including, uh, starting to include other stakeholders yes. as well, and keeping your mind open. Uh, well, Dr. Spielberg, I want to thank you so much for your time today to discuss your continued efforts in new approaches into exploring sustainable antibiotic discovery and development. This is Dr. Marnie Peterson, and you've been listening to Stewardship Spotlight, a podcast produced by the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project Team at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. Our podcast editor is Maya Peters. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our website at cidrap.umn.edu/asp. You can also find us on Twitter at SidRap underscore ASP.